Bible. First, let me say thank you so much for having me here this morning. I want to give a big shout out to your pastor, Pastor Benson, who as a young boy, I grew up many times under his preaching. I want to give a shout out to my home church, Christian Stronghold, and our founder, Dr. Willie Richardson, and my current pastor, Pastor Christopher Bell, pastors, Pastor Christopher Bell and Pastor Keith Bethel. And I just want to thank you for having me here this morning as we gather to look at what the Lord has in store for us. Well, let me give you a little warning from the beginning. I know it's Youth Sunday, and I come here planned to preach to the youth, but not only the youth. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to do it like Grandma used to do. She's going to sit the meal in the middle of the table. And so all my parents who are here, all my grandparents who are here, there's going to be something on the table for you. All my youth that are here, all of those who are watching, there's going to be something on the table for you as the Lord leads you. I just want you to grab it and pull it over and put some on your plate. Amen. Well, we find ourselves in Luke 2, if you would turn there in your Bible. Luke 2, verses 41 through 51. Actually, we're going to go 41 through 52. We need to culminate the text in the right way. 41 through 52. When you get there, say amen. All right, y'all some fast Bible turners. Amen. Amen. Uh, now, we're going to title this text, The Maturation of the Messiah. The Maturation of the Messiah. Now, for my youth, I want to make that make sense in the beginning. I know a lot of you are way smarter than me, but what we're going to look at in the text this morning is we're going to look at Jesus Christ being matured by God the Father. We're going to look at the position that his parents had in his life during this maturation process. And we're going to take examples from this on how we should mature as youth, what we should go after and what we should look at. Now, let's read the text. It says in verse 41, starting, Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, get that, when he was 12 years old, that's going to be important for the text, they went up according to the custom. And when the feast was ending, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. When they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, somebody say after three days for me, after three days, amen. They found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in the great distress. And he said to them, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Or what some of your texts may say, did you not know that I must be about my father's business? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading of his word. Um, you may be seated. You know, I was reading a book a few weeks ago, and this book was about Jeff Bezos, the owner of Amazon. In the beginning of this book, there was somebody writing a foreword, and they said that the most successful people in the world are those who 
continuously use their imagination and curiosity. And so what I want you to do is as we read this Bible this morning, in order for us to successfully grasp the text, we must use all of our imagination and curiosity. So we start off this morning, picture yourself not here, but you get to go on a family vacation, a road trip with a family back in this day. You are not hopping in your four-door automobile or your two-door coupe. You are hopping instead in a horse and buggy. And you are traveling with this family up to Jerusalem to celebrate a holiday, uh, what many may call the most important holiday that could ever be celebrated in their culture. Like you used to do back in the day, some of you might have done with your grandmama. You would get up, get ready, go south for revival. That's what this family is doing. So you get to inch over and get a little room in their horse and buggy. And you're traveling, you're sitting behind the mother whose name is Mary. You're sitting behind the father figure of the family who is the stepfather, who is the earthly father of this little boy that you get to see, that you get to share the back seat with. His name is Jesus. And as you're going up, nothing exciting happens on the road up there. And so you wonder if you've wasted your time even joining this family on this trip. You're thinking about things you could have done better at home. When you get there, nothing really exciting happens. But when you leave and all the fun starts. And the text tells us that Jesus and his parents in verse 41 went up to Jerusalem every year at the feast of Passover. And when he was 12 years old. Youth, you may not know this. This was coming up in my day, but... My parents and their parents used to say when a kid turns 12 years old, they start smelling themselves. They start to feel a little itch of adulthood. They start to think that they know everything and they can do it all by themselves. Well, I want you to see that that's not necessarily a bad thing because we're going to see Jesus do something like that in the text this morning. But we need to sit it in its proper context. Jesus is 12 years old. They went up for the feast. Everything went okay. Verse 43 said, and when the feast ended as they were returning... The boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. Now, as you read this text, I want you to write this down. This text has one big idea and one big idea only. That Jesus' parents are amazed at how the child they lost, at the child they lost, became the man they found. They are amazed at how this child that they lost when they were going on their trip, they're on their way back, became the young man that they found. They get to witness firsthand the maturation process of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. So verse 43 says that when the feet was ended, they were returning and the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. Now, before we can move any further, this text gives us a perplexing theological question. Did Jesus run away from home? That's a big question. Did Jesus run away from his parents? The reason why that's a big question is because the scriptures tell us that Jesus never sinned. So in order for Jesus to run away from home, Jesus would have to be in an act of rebellion. If Jesus was in an act of rebellion and Jesus sinned, then we are here for no reason this morning because our faith is not real because we worship a flawed Savior. So when you look at this text and it says the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, we have to ask the question, what does stayed behind mean? If stayed behind is not sinful, then what is it? Well, if you read the text and you just use the English language, you would think that the word stayed behind is pointing to the location of Jesus. He stayed behind in Jerusalem. He stayed behind at the house. But the text is not pointing to the location of where Jesus stayed behind. The text is pointing to the reason and the why Jesus stayed behind. And as simply as this, in this, the Hebrew language, this phrase stayed behind means that he stayed to endure. 
He stayed to be to, to, to be have this weight shifted to his shoulders. He stayed to have something dumped on him that was a little too heavy for him. So it just came in little increments. Jesus stayed behind because it was his mission to stay behind. Why, would it, why was it his mission to stay behind? Because this is the first time that we see in the text that Jesus goes from being the passive savior of the world to the active savior of the world. What do I mean by that? Everything we've heard about Jesus up to this point was done by God through others to usher him into our civilization, to usher him into society, to usher him into the earthly realm. We hear about the virgin birth and the immaculate conception. We hear about people coming far to worship him. We hear about John the Baptist jumping in the stomach of his mother when he rubs up against Jesus in the same space. We hear all this passive stuff about him. But up until this point, we hear nothing that Jesus has actively done. And this phrase, stay behind, means that not his earthly father, not his earthly mother, but God the Father is beginning to put the weight of being the savior of this world on him. And what Jesus is doing in this first point, I want you to get this, he is detaching from his childhood and clinging to what's in between childhood and adulthood. Now watch this, the maturation process of the Messiah do you notice how loving God the Father is? Jesus is 12 years old, and he says, Jesus, I'm not going to put it all on you at once. I know you're going to die on the cross at 33. You're really going to begin ministry at 30. I'm not going to put it on the cross to you all at once, but what I'm going to do to start it is I'm going to make you stay behind. I'm going to take you away from being your mother's baby, from being Joseph's baby, and I am going to begin to introduce you into manhood. What happens here is parents, this is a tip for us that when our children reach this age, the age of 12, the age of 13, the age of where youth ministries usually start, we have to begin to sense God's calling and have them stay behind for some stuff. We got to start to put responsibility on them. It's no reason you should have a 16 year old walking around your house not doing any chores. They need to stay behind. There's no reason you should have a kid that's 12, 13 years old and still clinging on you like God is not preparing them for something. They need to stay behind. All my youth, there's no reason that you should have not have initiative to try to figure out what God is doing for your life from 12 and above because this is the age where Jesus stayed behind. That's why if you ask me, spiritual formation is one of my favorite things to study. I think in the black community, many of us have it in any community, the multicultural community, we need to bring the rites of passage back. You know, the Jewish people have bar mitzvahs. Uh, our Latino brothers and sisters, Latinos and Latinas, they have uh, quinceaneras. But there needs to be a rite of passage to let our children know you are out of the child phase and now you are growing in to a young man and a young woman. And I am going to do for you what God the Father did for Jesus. I am going to start to lift the responsibility and put it under your shoulders because you are going to be under some weight in what God has called you to do. Jesus stayed behind. My youth, you need to be staying behind after school to get into that club that's going to further you in the future. My youth, you need to be staying behind at church to pray for your generation. You need to be staying behind at practice to help that person that is going through a struggle. You need to be staying behind because that's where God begins your maturation process. Now watch this. At the end of verse 43, it says his parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. 
But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. Watch this. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in distress. So point number one is Jesus is detaching from his childhood and he's clinging on to what is in the middle of childhood and adulthood. Whether you call that adolescence, whether you call that teenager, he's beginning to cling on to that. That's point one. And then point two, we see that Jesus is growing into his calling and picking his crowd that he's supposed to serve. But before we get to see Jesus growing into his calling, we got to look at what God is doing for his family unit. It says in verse 46, after three days, they found him in the temple. You know, I, it's challenging preaching texts like this because every preacher knows you get to the cross at the end of the message. But for some reason, the writer decided to make it hard on all of us, and he puts the cross right in the middle of the message. And he says, I want you to preach the cross, but don't get too happy. Why is three days so important here? Because as a parent, what God is doing is he is giving Mary in the family unit uh, of Jesus a glimpse at what he is meant to do. He says, Mary, you know what? Your son later on is going to disappear for three days. But I don't want you to be caught off guard, so I want to send you through a little peek of it right now. It's like the movie trailer. You get to see parts of the movie before you see the whole movie. This is what Jesus is doing for Mary right here. He's giving her a little excerpt of what your son is really called and meant to do. So what I want you to do, Mary, is I want you to lose him for three days. Then I want you to find him. And when you find him, I want you to realize I got it all under control. Father is saying to Mary, I want you to go through all the feelings of losing your son. I want you to go through all the feelings of thinking you may never see him again. I want you to go through all the feelings of thinking that something has happened to him. I want you to go through all those feelings, and then after three days, I'm going to let you find him. And after you find him these three days, he's going to shock you. But let me tell you, the next three days, he's going to shock the world. Jesus, God the Father, is giving Mary a glimpse of what her son's life is about. Sometimes as parents, we don't like glimpses. Glimpses can be terrifying. A glimpse can be your grandson, your son, your granddaughter, your daughter leading their high school class in a revolt and a revolution. You don't like that glimpse because that glimpse comes with a suspension. But under that glimpse is this desire and this ability to lead people and get them on one page. Some of you don't like the glimpses of what your children are called to do because the glimpse of what they call to do is every decision you make for their lives, they have to have an argument for it. But the glimpse means that they are going to dig deep in and get into dialogue and conversation and going to fight for the fairness of people. A lot of us don't like the glimpses of our children. I know I have a newborn at home. That's why my wife and my family couldn't be here for me because that little boy should just have a hat on his head that says straight out of Compton. Because at night he turns into a gangster. He don't sleep. He throws parties. He's up. He's yelling. He's screaming. He tells us, you're going to do what, we, what I tell you to do. And there's no ifs, ands, and buts about it. And I look at God and I say, God, are you giving us a glimpse? And the reason why I say that is because his name, just like my daughter's name, her name is Addison. His name is Avi. His name has meaning. 
Avi in Hebrew means father. And the reason why we named him father was a threefold reason. The first reason is we wanted him to know from the beginning that I am your natural father, but God is your father, father. We want to be able to explain that to him through his name. As a matter of fact, he has the short version of the name Avriel, which means God is my father. The second reason we named him Avi is because we wanted to dedicate his life to his maternal grandfather. His grandfather's not here. His grandfather died when his mother was just a teenager. And so we named him Avi and then gave him his grandfather's middle and his first and middle name as his middle name. So his name is Avi Wesley Stroman Greenfield. The third reason we named him Avi is because what I prayed in my heart is that one day he would be the father of some type of invention, the father of some type of revolution, the father of something that is meaningful in the world. And I don't like glimpses because this boy must change. He's probably going to change the world through the way that he talks because he can scream when he cries. I mean, there is no 2040. He goes from zero to 100 real quick. I mean, it goes from go get my milk to why haven't you gotten it very quickly? And you know, sometimes glimpses can be frustrating because he's waking me up out of my sleep. But it must be the personality that God is breathing in him. It could be what God is shaping him for from the womb soon as he came out of the womb to as he grows. We have to get comfortable with glimpses of who our children are, of who our grandchildren are. And our youth have to be able to know that they have a free space and that they have the availability to show the glimpses of who they are and not be penalized every time that they do. Sometimes we need to be lighter on the consequences and just step back and tell them, I see you. I understand what you were trying to do. You didn't just get there yet, but I understand that you were trying to lead. I understand that you, you see that there's an injustice there. I understand that you want to do what you believe you are called to do. And then for our youth, this means that they need to be praying to God and asking God that he would give them glimpses of what they're called to. And so Mary and Joseph, they get a glimpse of who Jesus is. And it says, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. This is for my youth right here. That society at times has taught us the wrong way that we can't have gifts and that we can't have the ability to change the world without thinking we know everything. But if you see the stature of Jesus, this is the one who has come to save the world. Notice that Jesus did not grab the mic and just start talking and say, everybody shut up while I give you my dissertation. But he is sitting there asking questions and giving answers. He's sitting there in the midst of the dialogue because Jesus is 100% man. But even though he knows everything as God, he's still feeling his way out through this world as a man. And he's saying, the biggest way that I'm going to save people is through relationships. So what really matters about who I am is not only the message that I'm bringing, but the posture that I bring it in. How can I die on a cross for people and convince them that I'm their savior when I won't sit down and have a conversation with them? How can I die for people on the cross and convince them that I came here to bring glory to my father by ransoming their life from the devil when I can't sit and have love with them? And parents, let me tell you this. This may be one place where your child or your grandchild has it right. That when you try to give them rules without relationships, it tells them that you 
care about who one day they are going to be, but not about who they are right now. And who they are going to be is all about how you nurture and you care for them right now. And so we have to be able to get into relationship, into dialogue, be able to hear them out and allow them to sit and give answers. Be able to see the wisdom that God is sitting on their heart and allow them to grow into who God wants them to be. Now watch this. This is why I think Jesus had black parents. This dialogue right here is a black parent dialogue. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, son, why have you treated us so? She didn't say, Jesus, good job. She said, she didn't say, Jesus, I was proud of the way you spoke. She didn't say, Jesus, son, you amazed us up there. What in the world were you thinking? That was the first thing out of Mary's mouth. He says, why have you treated us like this? Why have you done this to us? Whenever a child does something that shocks the parent, that astonishes the parent, that brings the parent fear, instead of focusing on the thing, they focus on, why me? Why couldn't you have done this to somebody else? Why couldn't you have scared somebody else? She overlooks the fact that she is simply amazed by who this child is that came out of her womb. And this lets us know, parents, be careful. And youth, I stand with you in this. Your parents raise you. Your parents sacrifice for you. Your grandparents and all of them together raise you as a unit, but they don't know everything about you. And sometimes what happens is the way that they find out things about you is when God puts you in a setting to do what you are called to do and you begin to amaze them. Now, mind you, this is this woman's son. He's 12 years old. She spent every day of 12 of these 12 years with him. She's weaned him. She's bought him up. She's traveled with him. She's nursed him. She's fed him. She's raised him. And then all of a sudden, this boy has the audacity to do something that astonishes her. And out of the fear of what's happening, the first thing that she says is, why would you do it that way? Why couldn't you ease me into it, Jesus? Why couldn't you warn me before you left? Why couldn't you ask me if you can go? And I don't want to give you the answer too quick because we're going to get it at the bottom of the text. But I want you to hold on to that. Why did Jesus have to do it the way that he did it in this text? His mother said to him, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And then this is where we get to the culminating point of our text. This is when we get to the end of it. Where Jesus tells her, in so many words, Mary, I'm your baby, but I'm God's child. Mary poses this question to him, and she asks him, why have you done this, and why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And look at what Jesus says. A lot of people think that Jesus was being snide, that Jesus was being sarcastic. We think that about our youth sometimes. But youth sometimes, they don't know any other way to talk but to state the facts. I only can tell you how it is, mama. You want me to answer a certain way. You want me to pontificate and wax eloquently. I don't know how to do that yet. I only can tell you the truth. You asked them, why did you do that? Because I felt like it. I, I don't know what to tell you. I, I want to tell you the truth. I know it might seem like I'm being disrespectful, but that's all my brain can handle right now. Look at what Jesus says to them. And he said to them, and, and, and he said to them, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And this is the point where Mary knew she had, to, she had a son, but she had to be reminded that he was the savior. That there's a point in life, mama, don't you remember when 
God gave me to you? Don't you remember when he put me in your stomach? Don't you remember when he told you about who I would be? Don't you remember that he told you that I would be the savior of this world, the prince of peace, that I would deliver a people? Don't you remember all that God told about you? Don't you remember that? And if you don't remember that, mama, you should have remembered that because you shouldn't be surprised that sooner or later I have to go to my father's house. I got to be about my father's business. I got to detach from what you want me to do and start doing what he wants me to do. I got to get called on to a greater mission. Now, mind you, I want to take a pause right here because I want to talk about the attributes of God the Father before we go any further. God separates Jesus from his parents and his sovereignty. He has them sitting in the temple, has Jesus sitting in the temple answering questions, asking questions, giving all these answers, astonishing people. But Jesus is only 12, year old, 12 years old at the time, and God would not fully unleash Jesus to do his full ministry until he was 30 years old. Parents, I, I want us to think about something here. Look at how long God the Father holds on to Jesus and doesn't kick him out to the world from 12 to 30. Now imagine this, imagine this, I grew up under this rule and it did some things for me that were good but a lot of things that were bad. Imagine this, you putting your child out to fend for themselves and they're only six years older than Jesus was at this point and that God didn't let Jesus go until 12 years later. We got to revisit this rule of 18 and you're grown. If Jesus was not released to do his ministry at 18 and God the Father was not saying at 18 you're grown, then where do we get this idea of 18 and you're grown? Because in the text it's going to tell us for a little bit that Jesus still needed earthly parents even though he was recognizing his godly call. I can tell you from experience... One of the worst things that I've ever been through in my life and the biggest mistakes that I've ever made in my life is when I've tried to grab manhood and I was still a boy. One of the biggest mistakes that I've seen in the lives of young ladies and young women is when they try to grab womanhood and they're still a little girl. And the reason is when you're a boy and you're trying to grab manhood, you're not going to grab the responsibility. You're only going to grab the perks. But you don't realize those perks come with context. Those perks come with, with, with responsibility. Those perks come with things that you are trying, that you need to do in order to grow into them and steward them the right way. And so sometimes as parents, I know you're tired. I know this child has been giving you it from 12 until 18. I know you're ready to get your house back. I know you are ready to be empty nesters. But think about how you are sending a child out into the world to grasp manhood or womanhood and they are not finished with boyhood and girlhood. They need somebody to help them grow out of it. And God the Father, God the Father our, when he sends our Savior out, he molds him until 30. I only can speak as a young man. And this is bad for me because I'm only 37. I was just getting my head on straight at 30. I was, like, I was like, okay, all right, life is about responsibility. All right, all right, all right, now, man, you know, and, and God bless my wife because we, get ma we got married by the time when I was about 27, and, and I was growing and I was maturing, but I had groups of men that walked with me. But when I tried to grasp manhood, 
and wasn't finished with boyhood, yet I made crucial mistakes. I made bad mistakes. A lot of people who know me who are going to see me preaching this know my story. I am a sinner saved by grace, just like everybody else who sits in this room. When I was a young boy trying to be a man, the thing that I latched on to was promiscuity. When boys want to be men, they're going to latch on to something that makes them feel like a man, even though they aren't ready to be a man. And throughout this promiscuity, God decided in his sovereignty that my sin would be accompanied with a blessing, but a blessing that I didn't know how to take care of. A blessing that I didn't even really want to take care of. And there were two boys that I had before my marriage. So I'm a father of two. One of them, I did not find out until he was five years old that I was his father. These are complexities that no boy can even fathom in his mind how to handle. And all I can tell you is the results of my fatherhood and boyhood were disastrous and much different than the results of my fatherhood and manhood. I often fight with myself sometimes. And I ask Jesus, what's going to happen at the end? Because the two children that were born inside of my marriage, the two children that see me love their mother every day, the two children that have a home over their head, the two children that do not have to deal with my dysfunction have a whole different lifestyle and a whole different, you know, just view of life and perspective of life than the two that were born when I became a boy. How can I live in such a confused and a complex? How can this be so that there's this one life over here that has all this trauma and shame and bad stuff over here that has to grow up in here? And there's other life over here that has a union that's been blessed by God. And the one thing that I could think of is when I went out there, youth, this is for you because mom and dad and grandma aren't going to be able to do everything for you. There were people who were around me who were saying, son, slow down. Son, I'm going to let you know what's around that corner. You think you're enjoying it, but you know what? And you think you're doing it because you want it, but you're really doing it out of unhealed pain. And all that to say this, stop putting them babies out the house at 18 years old. Stop telling them babies they grown at 18 years old. 18, teenager. 19, teenager. Stop allowing the standards of the world to launch our babies out there and put them on a terrain that they are not ready for with an enemy that is prowling around them like a roaring lion waiting to get them into some things that will destroy their life, mold them and hold them. Put that weight on them like, like God the Father was doing Jesus, but don't put them all out there by themselves. Did you not know I was in my father's house? The next part of the passage says, after he says that, and they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. Can you imagine that? Being a mother or father, a grandmother, grandfather, auntie, uncle of a child. And they say something to you about their own life that you don't even understand. You're like, yeah, that sounds right, but I don't get it. Yeah, that sounds like God is doing something there, but I'm lost. This is for our parents out there. When God made you a parent, he never intended you to do it on your own. Matter of fact, can I wake you up? The reason why you may have some trouble with your teenager right now, the reason why you may have some difficulties, some challenges, the reason why you may not be able to digest who they're becoming all uh, by yourself is because you're still trying to do it alone. That you're trying to set down more rules and govern the house instead of going on your knees and getting the prayer and saying, God, I do not understand. Help me understand. 
because we're going to see that Mary gives us a tip as parents in an upcoming verse, but it's okay not to understand the child that God has given you to raise. My daughter is seven years old, and by the grace of God, she gets to do some things that I could have never thought of doing as a child, like make art a career. Like my parents were like English, math, social studies, A's, B's, and C's. And one of the challenging things for me raising my daughter, there's some things that I don't understand about her because she's different than me. I'm an academic. I'm a bookworm. I'm a nerd. She wants none of it. And I go to my wife, and I used to get frustrated earlier on when I would see this. She's going to the second grade now. And I was like, what are we going to do? This girl just don't like school. I mean, she loves to learn. She's smart as a whip. But when it comes down to writing A's, B's, and C's, she don't want no parts of it. But she'll sit down there and draw dresses and gowns and hats and things for hours. She'll color them in with amazing detail. And I just didn't understand it. And I'm praying to the Lord and I'm talking to my wife. And God says, Darren, you have something on your hands. You have a creative. She doesn't think like you think. The things that are important to you about the world aren't important to her. She doesn't want to watch documentaries about how the world came to form. She doesn't want to do that. She wants to watch make, Making the Cut on Amazon. And you need to sit down and hope one day that you trust my sovereignty that I'm going to make something out this. And parents, what you need to realize is that Jesus gives you a co-pilot license with your children. That you are on the ride and sometimes you may get to touch the steering wheel and sometimes you may get to pick the route that you go, but you are not in charge. You are not the driver. And so when there are things that you don't understand about your child, what God is telling you to do, he's telling you, get in the closet with me, get in the scriptures with me, get in the prayer with me, get in the praise with me, because watch this, I am going to let you know that there are things you don't understand about your child, and what you're going to find out through your child is your things that you don't understand about me. I know God made people like that. What do you mean you make people that don't like to read? I ain't know they exist. I'm like, what are you doing? You, you, you make people that, that my, you know, I, I work in an office building, an innovation center, and um, I learned this from my daughter. They put stuff up on the wall for grown people to color. I'm a grown person. I ain't coloring. What, what grown people color? I didn't know they made people like that. And I'm finding out about God and who he is. They did not understand because the person of Jesus was being revealed and the will of God is getting revealed. They had to learn how to raise a child that God was leading. But let's end the text on what God the Father does at the end of this. And it says, and he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. Now, this is the part where we have to realize that Jesus has this glimpse of, man, my parents don't know everything that I'm made of. Man, I got some stuff in there they don't know about. Even might even get a glimpse to say, man, I'm a little bit more smarter than my mama and my daddy. I'm saying some stuff about God that they don't even know about. But watch this. Jesus chooses righteousness over arrogance. He chooses to grow into maturity rather than to leave out and go after immaturity. He chooses to be in right standing with God more than rebellion. And what I'm saying to my youth is there's some times when you are going to see flashes of greatness of what God is doing in your life. There are times when you are going to see that you understand the world and how it is today a little more than your parents and your grandparents. 
There are going to be times when you are going to have the courage to stand up for things. And because your parents and your grandparents grew up in a different generation, they don't have the same courage that you do. But those times don't mean that you can go out and do it on your own. Because the Savior of the world, even after he gives his parents this glimpse of greatness, the scriptures say to me that he went back with them to Nazareth and was submissive to them. That he says, listen, I can't claim God for the things that he's going to allow me to do to shock the world and then act a fool and look over the rules that he tells me about obeying my parents. I can't claim God in telling people how much they don't understand and then go back home and act like I don't understand the rules of the house. I can't claim God and what he is building me to be in an adult one day, but not realize that I'm not that adult yet, but I still have to be submissive to my parents. We got to have both sides of the pie in balance. And what, 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 what God is doing for Jesus is he's saying to him, son, I'm giving you more time to groom into it. God the Father is saying, you, I'm building up. This is the first active thing you've done as the Savior. But what he's doing to Mary and them saying, I'm still with you too. I'm not going to dump this on you by yourself. That boy's still under your leadership. I don't care how many spelling bees you won, how many state championships you won. I don't care if you can win an argument in mock trial class. I don't care if you can draw better than Picasso. That parents, by the words of the scriptures, still have the ability to say, when you are in my house, you submit to my rules. I mean, it's not me. It's the text. If Jesus had to submit, I guess we do, too. And so no matter how much you start feeling yourself, no matter how good you think that God is is doing something in your life, no matter how strong you think you are, no matter what, submission is still the rule. Let's close out on this because this is where I want us to close out the text. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. Treasured. This was an experience not for her to fuss about and continuously bring it up. Remember when you just left and ain't tell nobody? Remember when we had to look for you for three days? Remember when you almost gave me a heart attack? Remember, notice Mary's not doing that. He says she treasures it in her heart. The world moves so fast nowadays. The world is trying to get us to different uh, destinations so fast nowadays that parents, some of the things that we do not do is treasure up the times and the memories that we have with our children. This boy down there scared his mama and his daddy to death. But after she goes through this whole experience, she goes and she treasures it up in her heart. I mean, she spends time with it. She gives it a special place in there to live. She says, God, I know you're doing something. And even though this came with fear and even though this came with scaring me almost to death, this is a memory that I don't want. I want to remember because this is where you started to unleash the savior upon the world. Before you leave here, I want you to write down something that you should treasure in your heart about your child. And I'm not going to ask children to write down something that they should treasure in their heart about their parents because that's not a part of the text. Parents, this responsibility is on you to treasure up all these things in your heart, to look at the things that God is doing with your child. And children, this is on you right here. As Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. I didn't linger on it on top because I knew I was going to get down to it here. 
That one of the things that God had Jesus, God the Father had Jesus do when he was ushering him into his calling and his crowd is he picked the environment that he was supposed to be in. And in order for you to grow and increase in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man, you have to be right where God is. You have to be in the location. Because what you're going to be challenged to do is you're going to be challenged to go out and get and live and try to figure out maturity by yourself. There is not one person in this room who can mature by themselves. We mature in community. We mature in right community. We mature under the word of God, through the sanctification of God. There's only one place that can give you positive maturity. There are a thousand places that can give you negative maturity, which is just deceitful immaturity. So I want you to realize that Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man. He spent time with God. He understood more of what God wanted him to do in his life. He understood more about his relationship with God the Father. The biggest thing that you need to worry about as you grow from age 12 to adulthood is not what you want to be when you grow up. It's not how quick you want to move out of, the, out of your mama's house or your dad's or your grandma's house. It's how is my relationship with God? Am I increasing in stature and wisdom? And I, am I gaining favor with God and man? How I sit myself in the relationships of my life will tell me something about who I'm becoming. If everybody is pointing to you, my youth, and they're saying, you got to check this, you got to check this, you got to check this. The whole world can't be wrong. I'll give you half the world. But the whole world can't be wrong. We have to ask God the question of, do you have sovereignty over my life to lead me? And now what I want to do before I pray is I want to begin to set up the discipleship call. That even though we look at Jesus as a 12-year-old boy here, the principles that Jesus lives by are for all of us until we go to the grave. That he understands that God is his father. That he understands that God is ushering him into some things that he didn't even know what's going to happen. That there are onlookers coming around him at what God is doing in his life but if God doesn't have sovereignty over your life you are just a person out there living all by yourself and I'm sure you can point to some things in your life that have brought you pain and shame and trauma by living all by yourself well the thing about the Christian faith is that you don't have to do it alone that your life is not a stage where you just have to do songs and dances for God. And if he's pleased with you at the end, he will invite you to spend eternity with him. No, the Christian life says, I'll give you an advocate. I'll give you somebody who's going to die on the cross. And the reason he needed to die on the cross is because he know you would never accomplish it by yourself. But he loves you enough that he wants to see it accomplished. So what he's going to do is he's going to finish the work for you. And all you have to be able to do is the same thing that Jesus did for his earthly parents was a demonstration of what he did for his heavenly parent. He submitted to the will of God upon his life. And so I want to give you an invitation before I pray. I want you to think about this. I want to give you an invitation to hop out of the driver's seat of your life. I want to give you an invitation to stop trying to find maturity by yourself. I want to give you an invitation to finally be able to say, I can't do it alone. I want to give you an invitation to say, all I've done with my life is I've given myself a little bit of happiness, but more pain, and I haven't experienced joy. I want to give you an invitation to become a disciple of Jesus Christ. 
And as I pray, I want you to allow that to marinate on your heart. Treasure that in your heart. Do I need Jesus? Why do I need Jesus? Yes, you need Jesus. Why you need Jesus? Because you can't do it alone. What do I find in Jesus? I find hope. I find redemption. I find a love that I've never experienced before. Let me pray for us. God, you've shown us in the text this morning that your sovereignty is a sovereignty that grows us appropriately. That it doesn't push us out there faster than we need to push us out there. That it doesn't allow us to stay mature, but it builds us up and it grows us. And we've seen that all through the maturation process of the Messiah. There is no restriction on growth in the Christian faith. So we pray to you the same way that you have sovereignty over Jesus' life, the same way that you love him as your son, we pray that you would love us. But in order for us to be your children, we need to admit our sins to you. We need to come to you and say, God, I'm a sinner. What I mean by a sinner is I live in rebellion to God. I try to do things my own way. I don't allow you to be authority over me. And me being a sinner means that I am not in right relationship with you. But I've heard over and over and over again, it preached, I've heard it in songs. Saying being in right relationship with you is the greatest thing that I can do with my life. And I'm ready to take that step. So I'm asking you, will you save me? Will you save me from an eternity separated from you? Will you save me from myself? Will you save me from wasting my life and not being able to live up to what you've created me to be? Will you save me from not being able to tell the world about your glory? Will you save me? Will you bring me in to your family? And the only way that you can save me, the Bible says there's only one mediator between God and man. And that is that boy we spoke about today, Jesus. This boy, Jesus, became man, Jesus. This boy, Jesus, got up on a cross for the sins of humanity. He was whipped, he was beaten, he was spat upon, he was crucified. They laid him in a grave, but this boy Jesus who became the man Jesus is not somebody that we can go to a grave and visit their tomb and say nice things about them and remember them. No, this boy Jesus who became man Jesus got up out of the grave. And when he got up out of the grave, he got up with all power in his hands. And that means he has the power to change your life. He has the power to save you. He has the power to sanctify you. He has the power to handle everything in your life that you cannot handle. The question is, will you come? So this morning, God, we not only pray for those who are already in a relationship of discipleship with you, that they would be sanctified, but we pray that those who are not will come and this will be the day that they will be saved and their life will be changed forever. Will they allow your transformation power that comes through the blood of Jesus to drip all over their life? Will this be the day that they've become a new creature? Will this be the day that you begin to work all of the sin and the pain and the hurt and the shame out of them? Will this be the day that they've experienced love like they've never experienced before? I pray that it is, God, and we will let you do your work as we step aside. It's in Jesus' name we pray and we thank you. Amen.